It's Wednesday, June 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Matt Koppenheffer and David Hansen. Thanks for being here, guys. Howdy, Chris. Uh, we're going to uh, hit our midweek stride with a round of undervalued, overvalued. And uh, we got some wonderful comments last week when we did this. Uh, when Jeff Fisher and Brian Hinman were here, and, and Professor Jeff Fisher did his uh, three-hour dissertation on uh, breaking down options trades, I, I cannot match That's, that. Don't. Uh, I'm just going to set expectations expect. right now. We're not; <laughs> these guys are not going to be delving into the options. So I know that there were people who enjoyed that, but this is going to be what I like to refer to as just sort of the traditional undervalued, overvalued as we look out of the over the universe of stocks. Um, because not everything is fairly valued. And Matt, um, let's just start with you. What do you got out there? I'm guessing it's financial in nature. It is financial <laughs> in nature. I'm going with J.P. Morgan. Uh, J.P. Morgan has has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, a lot of it thanks to its outspoken CEO, Jamie Dimon. With great hair. Yes, with fantastic hair. And fantastic. that that is the reason I like J.P. Morgan. It all has to do with Jamie Dimon's hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's it's kind of funny to say that a stock is is over, is undervalued, sorry, is undervalued when it's been up 60% over the past year. Uh, but actually, when we look at banks, I think banks broadly, particularly the biggest banks, they've been uh, grossly undervalued to some extent. And when we look at the, the big four, sort of, uh, over the past year, Bank of America and Citigroup have vastly outperformed mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan. And when I think about this in terms of being fairly valued, when I think of any bank in terms of being fairly valued, you want to look at the return on equity versus what uh, what investors are paying for that equity, for the book value. And J.P. Morgan, I think, has not really caught up to the performance that it's had. So it, compared to Bank of America and Citigroup, where investors, the, the thesis there is, these aren't as bad as they look, uh, but th- the performance currently is horrible. At J.P. Morgan, the performance is much better, but I don't think the stock has really caught up to that. So I think there's a lot of potential still ahead for J.P. Morgan. I know both you guys uh, focus on financials, and I'm curious uh, what you think, David, about sort of the whole notion of, in particular, the big Wall Street banks, because there are plenty of investors out there, and I am one of them, who just have no interest in owning these stocks. Even you know, even when Matt makes a compelling argument that this is undervalued, and uh, no, I'm, I'm being serious. That's a compelling argument. I and intuitively, you know, I I understand that on a very fundamental level. But I'm wondering if part of the reason a stock like this is undervalued is because there are fewer investors who are going to jump into something like this. Just because the universe of investors is smaller, doesn't that almost make an even better opportunity for someone who is willing to jump in? I think I think it might be um, when we think about looking at a bank there there is a lot of hesitation in terms of opening that 10k and um, trying to understand what's going on in this bank but if we if we step back and think about what does a bank do they they take in money from their from their customers and they loan it out so the business of banking really isn't that difficult so if we think about projecting what a bank's going to do over the next five years in my opinion I think Matt shares the opinion it's much easier to project what a bank's going to do mm-hmm. than what Groupon's going to do or what Google's going to do over the next five years. So I find almost comfort in the fact that banking is is very traditional. We can read stories about the London whale. It's very complex. But, but that's just side businesses. When we think about the core business, it's very simple. And I think people might be scared unnecessarily. But don't you think, Matt, that... That's more the case with community banks. That they're that they're for the Wall Street banks. 
again, this is part of why I'm I'm not going to jump into a J.P. Morgan, just because there is that sort of quote unquote black box mm-hmm. that goes on where it's like, Ugh, yeah, maybe there is great upside, but at the end of the day, I don't fully understand how they make money. Uh, in all the ways that they do make money, and so that's why I'm just going to jump out. Well, first, I think you really hit it right on the head. I was actually looking at, at some Gallup polling numbers, mm-hmm. and before the financial crisis, the number, the percentage of, of Americans that said that they had great confidence in banks was at about 53%. I think that was the number, 53 but it was greater than 50%. Yep. Currently, it's at about 26%, and that's the highest level it's been at. I think it was over the past five years or something like that. So confidence has fallen off the table, and that's Americans in general. So when we think about investors, that's going to be to an even greater extent. And now when it comes to the big banks, yes, they do have some more exotic businesses. They do the trading. They do the derivative structuring, that sort of thing. But when you really get into what's actually making the money there, it's coming from consumer banking. It's coming from uh, business banking. It's really those traditional areas of banking that are carrying the bulk of the business and uh, investment management too. And the ticker symbol for J.P. Morgan? J.P.M. J.P.M. All right, David, what do you got for undervalued stocks out there? I'm going with Energizer Holdings. So when I say Energizer, the first thing that comes to mind is probably the bunny, the bunny, or uh, <laughs> the battery business. But the battery business at Energizer is actually only 45 percent. Of their revenue. There's more to Energizer than the bunny? <laughs> There's much more. So 50, 54, 55% of their revenue comes from other products. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them. They're Schick, uh, Edge, the yep. shaving products, uh, Skintimate. S- uh, I'm sorry, Skintimate? What is that? David a, is intimately familiar with Skintimate. Not quite. Um, I don't even know what that is. The, the, the female friends I have, it's a, it's a shaving gel for, for, okay. for females. Okay. Uh, so, so they have Skintimate, uh, Playtex, Banana Boat, the, the sunscreen. Yep. Uh, Diaper Genie. If anyone has a, a baby out there, I'm sure they're familiar <laughs> with Diaper Genie. Sure. Uh, so they have this whole basket of products and everyone thinks of Energizer. Oh, it's just batteries. And that's where the concern's coming in. Where does the battery business go from here? It's been in a little bit of a decline, especially in, in North America. But speaking of North America, of the whole company, only around 50% of their sales come within North America. Okay. So they do have a fairly a fairly large international presence. And when I get back to the valuation, so I, I like the business, I like their diversification there, and the business is only trading at around 16 times earnings, trailing earnings, and 14 times next year's earnings. So I look at this company, it has great international exposure, great products under its umbrella, and it looks like it's trading at a pretty reasonable valuation. So that's what gets me interested. I also think when you just obviously I'm I'm not familiar with Skintimate, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> I'll just I'll just speak to the other brands. And and it seems like they've got uh, whether this is by design. I don't know if they were at one point larger and then they sort of went the route that Procter and Gamble has done over the last few years, where they've tried to whittle down the number of products in their universe. But all of those brands you just mentioned are seem to me as a basic consumer, as being really solid, respected, trusted mm-hmm. brands. And I have to feel like that's got to be an advantage for them. That's one of those things that, of course, doesn't necessarily show up on the balance sheet, but it seems like that's got to help them. Yeah, you're, you're right on target there in terms of a couple of years ago, they were 70% batteries. Okay. And they've made these these acquisitions to diversify and, and get away from just being a one-product company. Uh, and the ticker symbol? E-N-R. E-N-R. Uh, Matt, as someone who spends a lot of time running outdoors, what is your, uh, I'm, I'm referring back to the banana boat here, is, is banana boat your go-to for sunscreen? I actually will grab anything that's on sale. 
Okay. So so as long as it's on sale, but I as you can t- I burn very easily. So it's it's usually a 70 or 180 um th- those are the levels. Really? Of, oh yeah. The 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 higher the number the better. See, I guess I go for the lower, but I'm not out there running as long as you are. I'm not doing the 50 mile run like you do. You know, I've heard that skin cancer is overrated. I, uh, I know, I know it gets really good reviews. As, as someone who that. has had more, more than his fair share of, of personal experience with that, let me tell you, not overrated. Um, uh, before we get to the overvalued, um, want to respond to a couple of, uh, listener comments, uh, our dozens of listeners weighing in via email and Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Market Foolery. Uh, we talked the other day, uh, I think it was Jason Moser making uh, the point we were talking about uh, old-style cartoons and reboots and the possibility of rebranding and that sort of thing. And he brought up a Mr. Magoo movie mm-hmm. and who he wants to... And uh, Amy Silverman on Twitter suggesting James Franco for the Mr. Magoo role. I don't know. James Franco, when I picture Mr. Magoo, I'm, I'm no. I, uh, Franco's a little too young, a little too handsome. It's it's thinking outside the box. That's, that's a- what this is all about, and you bring in a whole new audience with that. That's true. You're probably bringing in a lot more women. I'm, <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna. I uh, would not argue with that. Uh, yeah. Um, also, uh, we had talked last week about Pandora um, and Pandora's attempt to pay lower fees. And the latest attempt by Pandora is to uh, to buy a small radio station in South Dakota, um, and uh, I can't imagine that's going to work for them. But got uh, got this email. You can always email us radio at fool dot com is our email address. Uh, email from David Johnson. Um, on the most recent show, there was a reference to Pandora buying a Rapid City, South Dakota radio station. Much more was made of the small size of Rapid City than of the economics or motivation behind the purchase. Rapid City is small, but not nearly as small as reported, 7,000. The actual population is 70,000, with a metro area population of 125,000. Pandora claims to have 42,000 registered users in the Rapid City area. A little more fact-checking is in order, especially when the subject is the butt of your joke. First of all, um, uh, thank you for the email. And uh, as someone who grew up in a, a in a small town in Maine, I, I can totally appreciate not wanting to be the butt of the joke. I, I, I hope... I didn't think we had made too much of the small city, so I apologize if we if we struck a nerve there. Um, and I think it might have been, uh, well, I think it was Jason Moser, but I could be wrong about it. I think Jason was the one who said it was 7,000. Um, and he may have been referring to the fact that the radio station itself is actually located not in Rapid City, but in a, a town called Box Elder, South Dakota, which is a suburb of Rapid City. It actually does have a population of about 7,000. Um, but I, I want to just ask you guys, Pandora claims to have 42,000 registered users in an area that has 125,000 people. I, I'm calling shenanigans on that. Is that even possible? Like that, that, that Pandora, and I don't, I, I'm not a subscriber, but the notion that Pandora would have one third of any market, that seems enormous to me. They like to party, Chris. That's. I, I'm going. I, I like music as much as the next person. I and, and I'm not. You know, this isn't anything about Rapid City. This is this is about Pandora making what seems to be a pretty ambitious claim. Well, I'm. You know what? I'm pretty sure that Rapid City has some good uh, has some good races out there. Some marathons, maybe maybe even some ultra races. So maybe I have to head out there and see if they party as hard as those numbers suggest. If they have a 5K, I'll accompany you and I'll do the 5K. <laughs> uh, let's move over to the uh, overvalued stocks. Matt, what do you got? I've got Fannie Mae, Chris, and Fannie Mae has has 
gotten on a lot of investors' radars lately because there have been hedge funds that have been buying the preferred shares of Fannie Mae. I think a lot of people have seen the fact that Fannie Mae has returned to profitability. I was just going to say they're profitable now. So they that's, are profitable. We like that. And they're giving a lot of money to the government as well. Uh, there are a couple of things that I'm, that I'm worried that some people may be overlooking in the investment thesis for Fannie Mae. I think one of them is the, the possibility, the probability in my mind, that Fannie Mae equity, the common equity, will eventually be worth zero. If the government decides that they're going to wind down Fannie Mae, which a lot of people in Congress and the president has kind of hinted at this as well, that they want to wind it down. Mm-hmm. So there's a possibility that it goes to zero. So I think any anybody who's trying to do a valuation of what Fannie Mae is worth has to, has to consider that there is a relatively high chance. So you've got to weigh in that, that zero probability there. Uh, another issue is that a lot of the income or most of the income from Fannie Mae comes f- via interest income versus the the amount of money that it pays out on borrowings. So you've got this net interest spread. Now, the net interest spread has been expanding over the past few years, and that's not because interest rates have been rising. It's because Fannie Mae's funding costs have been plummeting. And the reason for that, of course, is that the government now essentially owns them. So they're borrowing with the government at their back. Right. So if this becomes a private company again, that kills that funding cost advantage. And, and anybody that's looking at the current results from Fannie Mae ha- has to take that into account. Uh, and, and finally, uh, there have been a lot of uh, provisions that Fannie Mae took for loan losses, uh, a ton of provisions during the credit crisis, and now it's reversing some of those. So it's actually seeing an advantage as it reverses uh, loan loss provisions. And going forward, we're not really going to see that. So again, current results may not be reflective of what it's going to see in the future. There is some probability of Fannie Mae continuing to produce profits, being reprivatized. So there is some value in that yeah. equity today. I think charitably, it's maybe around a dollar fifty, something in that range. It's currently trading at about a dollar eighty. Yeah. Um, but but again, that's charitably. And and this and this isn't and I don't think this is certainly something that 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 somebody that doesn't sleep well with a risky investment would want to be anywhere near. I was going to say it seems like one of those situations where obviously the headline is like, "Hey, Fannie Mae is back; they're profitable." Blah blah blah, all that sort of thing. But then once you get into the vast number of uncertainties, the you know the number of of potential red flag. Maybe red flag is overstating it, but just to, so again the uncertainties. Coupled with the fact that, uh, as fools, we tend to shy away from the stocks that are trading under five dollars a right. share. Uh, and and I, I mentioned I mentioned this the other day too. Is that one thing to think about in terms of Fannie Mae becoming a private company again? With all of the money that it's giving to the government, you've got Congress who basically wants to wants to reverse a budget deficit. Yeah, doesn't like raising taxes on its constituents, and it's got all of this money coming in from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Do they really want to get rid of that? I'm guessing no. Yeah, and and you talk about the uncertainties around the story and how this is going to play out. One certainty that if you if you pop open the the 10K of Fannie Mae, let's just assume for the sake of argument, everyone that, does it. Yeah. That I haven't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so most public companies they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to do what's in their interest. On the opening pages of their 10K, it explicitly states that they have no duty to their shareholders, their common stock shareholders or their debt holders. Wow. Their, own, their only duty is to the U.S. government. So if you're out there holding the common stock, the management can explicitly do something that is not in your ben- best interest and you have no course of legal action. At least they're being honest. Exactly. Uh, uh, overvalued stock. David, what do you got? 
I'm going with an old one. Uh, I'm sure it's been in here before called Overvalued, but I'm still going to call it Overvalued. Uh, going with Groupon. Groupon's had a nice run lately, hasn't it? It's up around 58% this year. There you go. So that's that's got the valuation back up to around $5 billion. So if you think back to 2010, Google made the offer. $6 billion. Of Yeah, just under $6 billion. And at the time, people were saying, why aren't they accepting this? This is a great deal. I can't believe they're even offering $6 billion. They, of course, declined it, and after they went public, the valuation crept up to, to $17 billion, if you can believe that. That's almost hard to remember, but yeah. So it's down, it's down over 70% from those peak levels, but still at $5 billion company for a company that has never reported a net profit. Uh, so when I look at this, they, they have an, a couple interim CEOs there. They don't have a CEO in place. That doesn't get me very excited about a company that is already wildly overvalued, in my opinion. Uh, they don't have a CEO in place yet. And you might think maybe, they, maybe they're making great strides internationally. Maybe the North American market's dried up a little bit, but internationally is great. If you look at their first quarter international numbers, revenue is down 18% internationally. So I'm having trouble finding any bright spots with Groupon. I'm staying far away. I, I don't see this as a $5 billion company. Maybe a $1 billion company, maybe. But uh, I'm staying far away. And the ticker? GRPN. Where do you think this company is in two or three years? Do you think it is still a standalone company? Do you think it gets knocked down to the point where someone comes in, whether it is a public company or private equity, and they look at it and they say, you know what, we can extract value from that, but we're going to be offering you a sum of money that's a whole lot smaller. What do you think, Matt? Bought on the cheap. Bought on the cheap, you think, yep. in a couple of years? Uh, three years, maybe. Three years, you agree with that? I, I think it's it's destined to be bought out. There is value. They have a huge database of emails of people that are obviously willingly giving their email, looking for deals. So they have a, a market, and they have a target customer that they have a captured email. So there's obviously value there, but it's not $5 billion worth. Uh, before we wrap up, a uh, story caught my eye on the Atlantic's website, about a brand new alarm clock. I think it was a month or two ago we were talking about alarm clock technology. And this is a new one as far as I'm concerned. This is an alarm clock uh, in which you place a dollar bill at the top. And when the alarm goes off, you've basically got five to ten seconds. And then if you don't hit your alarm, if you don't get out of bed, it shreds the dollar bill. <laughs> Any interest in this, Matt? Maybe as a gag gift or something like that? Yes, the only problem is, though, is that a dollar wouldn't work for me. In, in the morning, it's going to take a lot more than the threat of a dollar <laughs> shredding to get me out of bed. I, th I think at a minimum, it would have to be a $10 bill. A $10 bill? A $10 bill would get me out of bed. Is this working for you, David? We were saying before, I, th I think it's illegal to, to shred <laughs> currency. Well, again, it's, o it's only illegal if you don't get out of bed and hit the alarm. So right? exactly. I don't, I don't think it's the... You can, you can put a $1, $10. I don't think the dollar amount matters to me. If it's if it's me sleeping in my bed or sleeping in a jail cell, I'm going to get up, get up out of bed <laughs> a, and, and turn SWAT off the alarm. team breaking through the door. <laughs> just just down the door. <laughs> exactly. All right. David Hanson, Matt Coppenhofer. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>